If you all would turn in your Bibles to Joel, we're going to look at Joel. So, um, get past the big prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Then you'll get to this. They start getting smaller as you go to the right. Then you'll get Hosea, after Daniel, Hosea, and then you'll find Joel. So if you're looking at Amos, Obadiah, or Micah, you need to go backwards. And if you're in the New Testament, you need to start reading your Bible more. <laughs> but you can find it, I'm sure. But look at Joel. We'll go before the Lord with a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you, Lord, that you've given us this opportunity here to gather together as your people and stand before you. And, and we just ask that you'll speak to our hearts. By your Holy Spirit, you'll just open our hearts and our eyes up to your word and that we can heed the warning you have for us today. And we just thank you that you'll do that for us and that you're here in our midst and that you love us as a father loves his children and that you'll lead and guide us. And we just thank you that you'll do that in Jesus' name. So, you know, most I don't think most people sitting in here today in our group would argue that we seem to be heading down towards the end when, you know, God is going to judge the world of its evil and also come and establish his kingdom, going to come to a head. And that period throughout the Old and the New Testament is known as the Day of the Lord. So in case you didn't know, the Day of the Lord is just not a specific day. It's not one day. It's really, it's a period of time that a lot of events are going to happen in the Day of the Lord. So you have the Great Tribulation, Christ's Second Return, the Millennium, and other things that will happen during the Day of the Lord. Now Israel, in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to the Day of the Lord because they thought, hey, we're God's people. They're looking for the Messiah. They keep having all these nations oppress them. And when the Messiah comes and the Day of the Lord comes, they knew enough of those prophecies that they believe we're going to be delivered from our enemies and live happily ever after. The only problem was the message from the prophets on the day of the Lord, they're like, wait a minute, y'all, don't be so quick to hope for something. Because if you're not living right, the day of the Lord is not going to be good for y'all. For example, in Isaiah 2, you don't have to turn to that. He says this, enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day, for the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon every one that is proud and lofty, and upon every one that is lifted up, he shall be brought low. So he's like, hey, that's not necessarily a good day for everyone. It will be for some. So if you could just put something in Joel, I had you turn there. But if you could just turn to the next book to the right, stick something in Joel, and turn to Amos. We'll, we'll be coming right back to Joel here in a little bit. But uh, in Amos 5, verses 18 to 20, here I want to just look at a couple places where the day of the Lord is spoken of before we get into Joel. But in Amos chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, it says this, Woe unto you, so we're saying, hey Israel, don't be so quick to want it. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is what? Darkness and not light. It's as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house 
and leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. So he's saying for the people, the sinners on earth, and Israel that's not living right, it's just going to be, you think you're getting away from one problem, and a worse one's getting ready to meet you. That's basically what he's saying there. In verse 20, he says, Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very darkness and no brightness in it? And then, if you'll go a few books more to the right, go to Ob- to Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and you'll come to Zephaniah. He's not a real big book. It's just three chapters, so. But I do think, I do want to look at these few verses here. Listen to what Zephaniah has to say. So it's Obadiah after Amos, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and then you'll get to Mr. Zephaniah. So Zephaniah chapter 1, in verse 14 through 18, we read this. The great, here it is again, day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. Verse 17, the Lord says, I will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as the dung. Verse 18, it says, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the foul fire of his jealousy. He shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. It says there in verse 18, it says, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It is not going to help you out one bit in the day of the Lord. It's not going to deliver you. But I'll tell you, People living today, some people today, they think their money is going to deliver them from the, from the Lord's wrath. Now, I had a sermon ready, but I read this yesterday, this article in the news. And the article stated that for the first time we have, and they even use, this is not written by a Christian, but we have a modern Noah's Ark. It's opened its doors. It's offered for the ultimate, it's the ultimate billionaire bunker and doomsday escape. And this is the truth. So this company called Vivos, however you would say it, V-I-V-O-S, Vivos, by invitation only. You have to be invited to do this, but families can get 5,000 square feet of living space. They can hire their own architect and their construction worker and get this place built to their standards. It's this bunker in Germany, and it is said to be the most fortified and massive underground survival survival shelter on earth. It says the hardened facility is capable of withstanding this, a substantial close-range nuclear blast, a direct airplane crash, biological and chemical agents, shock waves, earthquakes, tsunamis, electromagnetic pulses, and virtually any armed attack. So this whole structure covers a third of a million square feet. That's what it covers. And it has two sets of massive steel doors that drop down 
and totally insulate that. There's no gas, there's no chemicals can get into this facility. That's the way they're selling it. So it says the facility is designed to allow families to survive virtually any catastrophe or disaster for several years. Now, here's what you can have in your little 5,000-square-foot home you'd be living in. Listen to this. What's, what's the day of the Lord to these people? Because they'll have pools, gyms, a kitchen, bar, bedrooms, and deluxe bathrooms. What's the tribulation? But here in the public areas, here's what they got in the public areas. This is all going to be enclosed in this, this massive structure. Restaurants, a bakery, a brewery pub, a wine cellar, and we can't leave God out of this. Prayer rooms and chapels will be in this place. A nursery, classrooms, computer areas, television and radio station. And, of course, billionaires can get in trouble. There's a jail in this place. <laughs> Deep water wells, a power plant, pet kennels, a hair salon, theaters, and so on. So while the rest of the world's being judged, these people, life just goes on. So they think. So here's how it works. Members, it says, arrive at their own discretion <laughs> prior to lockdown. So they fly their private plane into this designated area in this company, Vivas. The only way you can get into this place once this all starts happening is by their helicopters will bring you in. So you fly your private jet. Once you see those nuclear bombs come, eh, no problem. Get your jet, head there. They take you in by the helicopter and all is well. They'll be deployed to rendezvous with each member group and safely fly them back to the shelter and access their private quarters. And the last thing it says is Vivas is now, only now, offering this unique potential for those who truly want the ultimate in personal safety for their families. So has anybody here gotten that invitation? It's by invitation only. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you have. Well, I'm asking it. <laughs> I mean, asking it really answers it. Do you think it'll work? I mean, they got it all thought through pretty well. But look what it says. Well, look at verse 18 in Zephaniah again. It says, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. Well, you know, I mean, do you think everyone that is so worried about business, if you are, not everyone is, I know that, that you're making enough money to be delivered? I mean, is money the answer? Well, one thing we know, we do know from the New Testament, and so I'm not trying to make this, is not necessarily an end-time teaching, but don't we know that the day of the Lord has not come yet? Isn't that what Paul wrote to Thessalonians? He said, don't let somebody by letter or any other way get you all shook up saying that the Lord, the day of the Lord has come. He's saying already here, not that it's near. He's saying, don't let somebody get you all shook up that the day of the Lord has already come. Because he said, first we have to have what? A falling away and the man of sin needs to be revealed. Now, whether he's around or not, but I have no clue who he is. If you know, you know more than I do. But I do think if you look at the trends going on now in Europe and America, I mean, a falling away has taken place. Europe is one dark area in this world. And if uh, I just happened to get another book, I already had this message ready, written by Jim Cimbala called The Coming Storm. So apparently this is a message for God's people now, I guess. I mean, I don't know. 
But uh, in that first chapter of that book I read, I didn't have a chance to read much of it, but he gives statistics saying, you know, because we're around people in this church all the time, we tend to know other people that are Christians. You just tend to think everybody thinks like you and is born again and all. It's like he said, 7 to 8% of America are truly evangelical born-again Christians. Even though you walk down the street and ask somebody, are you a Christian? Everyone practically will say yes. The majority probably would. It's just like if you're in Rome and you ask people there, are you Catholic? Everybody's Catholic. That doesn't mean they go to church or love the Pope. That's just what you are. That's kind of like in America. You're a Christian if you live here. So the question I want to ask is the question that's asked, and it's the title of this message. The day of the Lord, will you stand? So go back to Joel, and we'll actually start looking at some places in Joel. But look in chapter 2, verse 11, in the last part of that verse. Second part of Joel 2.11, it says, For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. And Joel says, And who can abide it? If you don't have a King James, it's more than likely it's going to say, Who can endure it? And John picks that up in the book of Revelation in chapter 6 and says this. The people say during the tribulation, this day of the Lord, hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And it says this in the book of Revelation chapter 6, for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? That's the question. We're going to see the day of the Lord's coming. And then we'll see that. And then we're going to say, well, who are the ones that will be able to stand? And who are the ones that are going to fall? Because it's going to be one or the other. So the main theme of the book of Joel is the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is basically it is when God, right now God's not intervening like he will then. But he is ultimately going to intervene to bring the whole world under his sovereign control. He is going to judge wickedness and set up righteousness. That's what's going to happen in the day of the Lord. And there's going to be two groups of people at that time. There's going to be Jews and Gentiles who refuse to bow the knee to the Lord and live as sinners. And for them, the day of the Lord is going to be absolutely terrible judgments that will take place. And the other group are those people that will see that walked in repentance and faithfulness. And for them... It'll be a day of deliverance and seeing the establishment of his kingdom. It will be, it'll be a terrible time no matter what. But for them, it will be a good time, you could say. So beginning in chapter 1 in Joel, Joel begins talking about, what he starts talking about there apparently was a devastating locust plague that had happened in Israel at, at the time. It had already happened at the time he began his prophecy. Now, Israel was an agricultural society. We used to be that way in America, and Shelby County is probably more that way than a lot of parts of America, but we tend to be less of an agricultural society. But locust plagues were common, and they still could be, in Africa and the Middle East back then, and just wipe out crops, and it was just totally devastating to a society that totally depended on agriculture in all respects. Now, you all can do this if you want. You can get on YouTube. It's kind of, in a way, technology's bad, but in a way, it's kind of good. Because I got on there yesterday. I thought, I'd be curious. They got everything on YouTube and the Internet. You can literally, this family is on vacation. I guess that's what it is. They're in the Congo, 
and a locust swarm is comes over that highway where they're at, and this guy is filming it out of his car, and the sky is black with locust. It is just demonic, is all I can say. And his little girl in that car is screaming the whole time he's videotaping this. Now he thinks it's funny. The guy, you, know, you can hear him talking. But every now and then, that those things, one of those things would just land on the windshield, and it just, and it's just looking at you. It's like, I am ready to eat you if I can. And that girl would just go crazy, and I'm kind of with her. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's scary. And I watched, an, I watched another infestation, so we're going to talk about this in a second in, in verse 4, chapter 1. But at locusts, or in all their stages, they're not always flying and swarming. At one stage, they're just hopping and moving forward. And they showed that going on, on the ground, and it's like channels of an army, and just totally, it looks like a brown river. And it's, it's just these millions upon millions of these locusts are just moving, just devouring the land, and moving forward and hopping. It's crazy. There's people that live in those areas that are just scared to death of all that. Now, in California in 1969, there was a locust plague that happened there. It covered one county, it said 200,000 acres. And it said in that 200,000 acres, there was a locust on every square inch. And they said in places they were so thick that there was two and three piled on top of each other. And once in the Middle East, they had a locust swarm. Now, this is big, 2,000 square miles. And it said there was 24.5 billion locusts. Now, the typical one in that area, and that's where most of these swarms happen, or like 430 square acres and 30 to 40 million, that's all. <laughs> no big deal, you know. But here, look at, look at Joel. So he starts this off beginning in verse 1, the Lord, word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And look what he says in verse 2, talking about this locust plague that's happened. He says, Hear ye this, you old men, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has this been in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell ye your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children another generation. And so he's drawing attention to the fact that this is just, they'd had locust plagues. That's not that big a deal. But he's saying, this one is worse than anything we have ever seen. He says, you old man, you've been around a while. And you would know something that was unusual, Right? I mean, something happens to a five-year-old, scare him to death, and you're like, man, that happens all the time. No big deal. I've been around 55 years. I know everything, right? So he's telling the old man, hey, let me ask you something. Have you ever seen a devastation, a locust devastation like this one in your lifetime, or did your dad ever tell you about it? One like that, and the implication is, no, they haven't. Never in their lifetime. Never heard of anything like that. And he says, hey, in verse 3, he's telling them, I'll tell you what, you need to remember this. This God has sent this. Do not forget this. You need to make sure your children remember it and their children and continuing on for generations. This is no small thing that's happened here. And why? Why was he telling them that? Because it was a harbinger or a precursor or an indication of what was to come the total destruction that's coming of the day of the Lord is coming. And he's saying, hey, you all have never seen anything like this before. But I'm just letting you know this is going to pale in comparison to what's coming. So don't forget it. Don't forget what you're warning. 
what you're saying. It's a warning, he's saying, that needs to be repeated and passed down. Don't forget it, right? Now, how does that affect us? Now, I've said this before, and sometimes I think, man, I don't want to be like the boy that cried wolf. I don't think I am. But we've had something unusual happen in our country. Our version, I believe, of the locust plague that was unusual and devastating. Actually, two things I would almost say. We had the Great Depression, which came after great economic success of the Roaring Twenties. We've never had anything like that. To this day, people are afraid of that happening again to some degree. But I think more specifically, what we've had, our version of the Locust Plague, was September 11th and the Twin Towers. Now, Israel, for God to get their attention, he did what? They're an agricultural society. So he sends something in there that is going to devastate their agriculture in a very unusual way. In the USA, what are we driven by? The stock market, aren't we? If the stock market rises, we're good. And if it falls, which it did in the 20s, I mean, we are in bad shape, aren't we? That's kind of the gauge that we measure how we're doing. And what did the Twin Towers represent? They represented our financial markets, did they not? In a big way, right? So God was sending, I believe, a sign. And just like the old man of Israel, I would say, have you ever... Has anyone ever, I never have, never heard of, has anyone ever heard of anything like what happened to this nation on 9-1-1? I mean, how many in here remember where you were when it happened? I mean, I do. I can clearly remember where I was and what happened when I heard the news. But here's the thing. If everyone's honest, because I, I, I led praise here the day that happened. It wasn't the best praise I got to lay. I mean, there was a heaviness over this church. It was either that day or the next day. I don't remember which. But people were shocked, weren't they? Horrified at what happened. How could you not be? And I'm telling you, people in America were scared. They really were. People in here were scared, and I'm saying that I understand all that. And here's what else what happened in America. People in America, all of a sudden, what happened? People got religious. That's the truth. Churches are all of a sudden being filled. I'm taking guitar lessons from this guy. I tried to witness to him. He didn't want to hear anything. But 9-11, we didn't have a guitar lesson. It was a witnessing session. Everybody's all ears, weren't they? Churches became full for a while, but guess what? It just quickly faded, didn't it? So let me ask you this. Was 9-11, was that just bad luck? You know, were we just the victims of evil men and we just need to take care of those guys? Was those planes flying into those buildings, no more significant than people being killed in a car crash on I-71 North? Is it no different than that? Just kind of bad luck? You just happen to be in the wrong place? If we learn anything from reading our Bibles and the preaching we've had through the years, what do we know? God is in control, I mean, of all events. I'm talking big and small, and especially that event. You think he could not have prevented that from happening? Easily could have prevented that from happening. So what would God's message to our country? Then we read about the day of the Lord. He's going to take care of the proud and bring them low. And here's the thing. Most preachers, I, I kind of paid attention to what was going on in the national preaching thing. Most of them were afraid to say anything about it. You know why? Because they don't want to be like the Pat Robertsons. And all the nutcases that make a big deal out of everything that's not really that big a deal. But some did. 
Some came out and said, you know, what was going on. But stay in Joel there, and I want to look over to Luke 13. I think this is kind of the message. If you don't, if nothing else, I'd say this would be the message of the Twin Towers. So Jesus here talks in Luke 13, beginning in verse 1. He says, There were present at that season some that laid, that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? And he said, I tell you, no, they weren't. But except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, do you think they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? And he says, I tell you, no. But except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Now here's here's what he's saying. It's do you think those people in those towers were greater sinners than the rest of us? Oh, they're just a bunch of money grubbers. They got what was coming to them. What would Jesus say? That that is our version of the Tower of Siloam. He would say no. I mean, God executes judgment to send a warning. Now those people in those towers, believe me, they were not greater sinners than the rest of America, were they? They really weren't. We know that, don't we? But they just, it just happened to be they got their justice right then as an example and as a warning. And so Jesus isn't saying the ones on that tower of Siloam fell, they just had a bad day and they really didn't get what they deserve. He's not, that's not his point. His point is that should wake you up. And that's the point of the Twin Towers. It's not that those people are greater sinners than we are, but unless we're walking in the fear of God and to all of America, they us, America, will likewise perish unless what? We repent. That's the message of Joel. So God sent another message, I believe, about six years after 911. And one night, basically overnight, our stock market was cut in half. And I had all the business I wanted at the time. And I'm telling you what, it's like the spigot got turned off because all these people that had all this money in the stock market that I work for, all of a sudden they're not wanting to spend their money anymore. And our economy was headed for a nosedive. And so what did our government decide? We're going to inject trillions and trillions of dollars, and they keep doing it, into this economy. And all it was is a Band-Aid because there's two trains of thought on that one thing. One thing is like, hey, you can prop this up for a while, but all you're doing is putting a Band-Aid on a festering sore, and it's going to have to come off at some time. And if you don't let that thing get some air and run its course, it's going to be that much worse when it finally comes off. And there's other people who say, oh, we just can't afford Just talk to a guy, some rich engineer. And he said, ah, oh, we did the right thing, and this is the way it is. We live in a global economy. And they know if we fall and we go into a depression, it's not just isolated to us now. It's the rest of the world. It's a domino effect. I mean, how do you think the Antichrist is going to... Brother Hamilton talked about that forever. I think he's right. These countries fall and economic collapse. The domino effects happens. And then people are looking for the Savior. They're looking for that person that's going to give them that money and bail them out of trouble because especially here in America, none of us want to sacrifice and do without. And we haven't. Because basically, just like with Israel, somehow we manage, don't we? The economy just seems to be going okay. Everybody's working. 
And 911, that was a big deal to everybody and should be from generation to generation, it's fading out of you. Life just goes on, doesn't it? For almost everybody, all of us. Because we seem to be able to cope. It's forgotten. Uh, back to Joel. Let's go back to Joel chapter 1. And look at this devastation he talks about here. He said, so he's saying, hey, he said, let your children remember what's happening. And here's what happened. In verse 4, now here's where King James, I like King James, and I preach from King James, but King James is probably the worst translation here of any of the translations that are out there today that are popular, about the palmer worm, uh, the locust, the canker worm, the caterpillar. You get the impression there's like four different types of insects in here. Well, this much I know. There are not four different types of insect. And if you have a different translation, you'll see that it's all locust. So the only thing they're not sure about is, is it locusts, the same locusts at different developmental stages, or is it just different locusts attacking at different times? Because this judgment goes on for years. This isn't taking place just like one, you know, locusts only live four to five months, but this keeps going on. It's like they come in and wipe it out, and another swarming locusts come in. Because whether those locusts are larvae, they can't fly yet, or they're flying and swarming, they devour everything in their way that is green. And even some things that aren't green. And this is four waves of locusts he talks about. And look what he says in verse 5. He said, they have devoured the fruit of the wine. And he tells the drunkards, listen guys, wake up. Because drunkards like to drink and sleep a lot. And he said, hey, y'all, you need to wake up because guess what? No more liquor is going to be coming on your lips. The fruit of the vine is gone. You need to wail and howl, he tells them. You're just taking for granted they can just drink all the wine. He says, uh-uh. You're addicted to that stuff, and it's going to be gone. The party's over, fellas, he tells them. In verse 6 there, he says, for a nation... He likens these locusts to a nation has come upon my land, verse 6, strong and without number. They are like a cloud coming over that you can't even number. It said the same thing about the plague that came on Egypt in the book of Exodus. But this is just like unbelievable when they came. And he talks about the way they would devour those plants. Their teeth are like the teeth of a lion. They're just taking, stripping everything. Nothing standing in its way. In verse 7, look there, he says, He hath laid my vine waste and even taken the bark off the fig tree and made it clean, bare, and cast it away. They said they will just strip bark off. They don't even, they're not wanting to eat it. They just do it to be nasty. They're filled with the devil. Locusts are, I believe. <laughs> I don't have a verse for that, but that's the way it seems. Yeah, it seems logical. So they made it clean, bare, and cast it away, and the branches thereof are made white. And so Joel says, hey, in light of all that, and we're looking at this utter devastation, he says, you all need to be mourning what's happening. So in verse 8 it says what? He tells the people to lament like a virgin, like a person that's just married. She's in total love with her husband, and all of a sudden on their wedding day or shortly thereafter, he dies. Oh, man, she'd be well. He says, that's the way you need to be about what's happened here. He tells the people to mourn. In verse 9, he tells the priests to mourn. The meat offering and the drink offering, it's cut off because that comes from the vine and the crops. And he's saying there is no more of that. And he says, so you priests, 
Verse 9, the priests, the Lord's ministers, mourn. And why is that? Those are daily offerings. That's how the people in the nation have communion with God. He's like, you all can't do your job, and you should be realizing communion with God is shut off. And he even calls the land to mourn. Verse 10, the field is wasted, and the land mourneth, for the corn is wasted, and the new wine is dried up, and the oil languisheth. So could you picture, I mean, you drive into Shelby County today, and there's green everywhere. And can you just picture a locust swarm comes by and it looks like wintertime because there's nothing green around. And all these corn stalks, nothing's left. They've wiped it all entirely out. Your grass is gone. The place is just totally devastated. That's the picture you have. Look in verse 11. He says, Be you ashamed, O ye husbandmen, and how ye vine dressers for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is perished. He's telling the farmers, you guys, there's nothing for you to do. Everything's gone. Nothing to eat, nothing to feed your cattle with. You know, Paul was back then, and Daisy, they'd be, their whole family would be dressed in sackcloth and ashes because he's got no hay for his cattle because it's all wiped out. That's, that's the picture they're giving you. Nothing left. And verse 12 says this, The vine is dried up, and the fig tree languisheth, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree, even all the trees of the field are withered. Those are all, those are all outward evidences of God's blessing that produce joy. So they not only had this locust plague going on, but there also was a severe drought and famine going on, and everything is either eaten or withered up. And look what it says there, because joy, or indeed, because or indeed, joy is withered away from the sons of men. What is outwardly taking place is what's happened to them on the inside too. So I would just ask all of us here today, how is our joy, not happiness, because you're making a lot of money, but how is your joy this morning, all of us in here? So has the devil stripped you? Of the joy of the Lord? Has your sin caused your joy to dry up and wither? So really, this is not a rebuke message. Believe me. So just stay with me. There's, I guess more positive as things move on. But what is Joel's answer to no joy? It's in verse 13 and 14. He says, Gird yourselves and lament ye priest, how ye ministers of the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my God. For the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. So he's telling the ministers, hey, what should be a, a blessing the way you minister towards the people? It's cut off. You sh that should be affecting you in a big time way. And then in verse 14, he says, sanctify ye a fast. Call a solemn assembly. We don't even know what those words mean, do we? Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord. So he calls the people to repentance and lamentation for the judgment that God has brought upon them. And he tells the priests, they're supposed to wear white garments. He says, you take off your white garments and you put on the black garments of sackcloth. This is no time to be rejoicing and mourn and weep. 
for your obviously bad spiritual condition. And what does that sound a lot like? This is another verse. It's not real popular in the New Testament, but it, it's there. So if you could put something there again in Joel and turn back to James chapter 4 and see if this doesn't sound a lot like what he says, what we just read. So in James chapter 4, he's getting on the people. He's saying, you guys are just too much in love with the world. And you can't be that much in love with the world and love and in love with God at the same time. Something's got to give. That's what he tells them in verse 4. But look what he says in, starting in verse 6. He says, but God will give more grace. Wherefore, he says, God will resist the proud. And didn't remember reading, that's who's in trouble on the day of the Lord. But he will give grace unto who? The humble. And so he says, listen, we've got a responsibility in all this. God's just not going to pour down his presence and blessing because we do nothing. And we're out there living like worldly adulterers, as he says in verse 4. But what does he say we should do first? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And then what should you do? Resist the devil and he'll flee. And too many people are trying to resist the devil and they really haven't submitted to God. We've, we've heard that before, haven't we? But verse 8, he says, draw nigh to God. You do that first. And then he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And look at verse 9. If this doesn't sound like Joel, probably where he got it from. What does he say? Be afflicted. Do you know what that is biblical code word for? Fast. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and what will happen? You do that, you realize things just aren't right. In Joel, he's saying, call a solemn assembly. Get all the people in there together. You realize things just aren't right. And it says, God, he says, you do that. The time of joy and rejoicing will come back. But if it's not there, don't try to make it happen when it's not there. That's the time to get before the Lord. Let me tell you, the solemn assembly, three times, I don't know how many, Mr. Rudy would probably know this, but we've had three times, I think actually a few more, but I know for sure, three times in American history, Congress, our Congress, has called for a national, now we have the National Day of Prayer, that's a total joke, okay? But this is back in the day, three times Congress called for a national day of fasting and Prayer, a national day of fasting and prayer, passed by our Congress. And one, some of them were back in the colonial days, one was in 1863. Good old President Lincoln. And let me read this, read it to you if you could just bear with me for a second. This is March 30th, 1863, a proclamation by the President of the United States of America, Abraham Lincoln. And it says this, whereas the Senate of the United States devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God and all the affairs of men and nations has by a resolution requested the president to designate and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation. And whereas it is the duty of nations as well of men, as men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God 
is the Lord. Now listen to this, if you can bear with me. And in so much, they went on to say, as we know that by his divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world. May we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment afflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. Listen to what they say. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. This is what they wrote in 1863. The choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. Could have written that today. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hands which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. Can you believe that? That's the Congress read nationally. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. I do there hereby request all the people to abstain on that day from all their ordinary secular pursuits and to unite at their several places of public worship and their respective homes in keeping the day holy to the Lord and devoted to the humble discharge of the re- religious duties proper to that solemn occasion. All this being done in sincerity and truth, let us then rest humbly in the hope authorized by the divine teachings that the united cry of the nation will be heard on high and answered with blessings no less than the pardon of our national sins and the restoration of our now divided and suffering country to its former happy condition of unity in peace. By the President Abraham Lincoln. Wow. So today we have wars, flooding, riots, tornadoes, hurricanes, you name it. And do we ever hear a word? Could you imagine the president today saying something like that and calling for a day of national fasting and prayer? That these judgments, these judgments that come on our nation or 9-11 are the results of our sinful pride and idolatry of money? It doesn't happen, does it? Does that mean it shouldn't happen? Because what is the problem? It even said there, we are too self-sufficient. And don't we look, I mean, I've grown up in this nation. We, anything that happens, I, you just tend to think we can handle it. We can throw money at it. Our technology will be able to handle it. We've overcome everything in this country. Isn't that the way people think? That is the way people think. One day I think God is going to send our modern technology and wisdom. He's going to bring it to its knees. Not too far off. I really do. So I would say in light of all that, Sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord and cry unto the Lord. Alas, verse 15, for the day of the Lord is at hand and its destruction from the Almighty 
shall it come. So I would ask all of us, are we serious about our spiritual condition? Now, do we really want to know God? Do we really want to experience true peace and joy from God? And do we really, in this body, charismatic, spirit-filled, do we really want to know the power of God? And I'd say it's not going to be this easy one, two, three steps. And it's not going to just happen by osmosis where we just show up to our meetings and and it just all of a sudden, boom, there it is. It doesn't, it's not going to work that way. I believe it's going to get back to just old-fashioned fasting. And you look at saying, buddy, you don't look like you've been doing a lot of fasting. I'm just an empty shell. That's all I can tell you. Well, listen, there was a period in my life back in around 96 or whatever where I did a lot of fasting. I'm saying, all I'm, I'm just saying it to say this, okay? No, I'm no hero, believe me. But I've seen God's supernatural power work in my witnessing. Doors opened up. Uh, even even had a miracle happen in my family, a literal miracle that couldn't be answered any other way than the presence of God. And it does, it's not like fasting. You're earning something. But we never talk about it, do we? And I'm saying Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount didn't say if you fast, but when you fast. And groups like ours fasted a lot back in the day. And I don't know how much anyone does in here. Maybe everyone else fasts all the time. But it's going to get back to that. It's not some little one, two, three easy step program. It's just going to be fast, and that's what they were doing here. That's what Joel called for. That's what our nation did when things weren't right. Abraham Lincoln called for it. And Joel tells him here, he says, hey, can't you see? Aren't your eyes open to just something's not right? Look what he says in verse 15 or 16. He says, look, is not the food cut off from before your eyes? Can't you see it right before your eyes? He goes, yes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. And I say, look around. Where is the joy? Where is the gladness? Where are the bright countenances we should all have, right? So maybe we need to take James 4 seriously, all of us, as individuals. Let's humble ourselves. Look in verse 17. It wasn't just a plague of locusts. Like I said, it was a famine. It says the seed is rotten under the clods. The garners are laid aside desolate. The barns are broken down, for the corn is withered. There's a famine coming. And if you read Amos 8, he's saying, hey, there's a famine coming. It's going to be way worse than this physical famine. It's going to be what? We all know. A famine of the Word of God. So if we just sit here and keep hearing preaching, and that's all the further it goes, and we're not really experiencing the presence of the Lord, He can take even that away from us, can He? We can't assume that He won't because He's done it. The cattle and the sheep, they got more sense than the people. Look at verse 18. They know there's a problem. He says, how do the beast groan? The herds of cattle, they're wandering around perplexed because they have no pasture. Yea, the flocks and the sheep are made desolate. The the prophet's saying, look, your animals have more sense than you do. They're actually mourning the fact that God has judged us. And you all don't seem to care. That's what he's telling them. Now look at verse 20, but he's like, or verse 19 and 20, but he's like, if you won't cry, look what he says, I will. Verse 19, O Lord, to thee will I cry. For the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned all the trees of the field. And not only me, but I'll cry out. The people won't all cry out, and the animals will be crying out with me. Verse 20. For the beasts of the field cry also unto thee, for the rivers 
of water are dried up, and the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. He goes on and says, it's a pretty bad scene right now. It really is. But you get into chapter 2, those are locusts. Chapter 2, he uses locust terminology, but he's talking about a real army coming on. And look what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, blow you the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land do what? Tremble, he says, for the day of the Lord comes, for it is nigh at hand. He's basically telling them, look, I've already explained to you what your yard, this has already happened. They're looking at it. He goes, how can this not affect you? He goes, well, let me tell you, you ain't seen nothing yet. I'm giving us sound the alarm. You got an army coming that is terrible. It should make you shake. You haven't seen anything yet. And like one guy said, Dwayne Garrett, he says, hey, they're not to tremble because an army's approaching. They should be trembling because this army represents the wrath of God. So, look, there's a judgment coming on this earth like we have never seen. And we are way too soft in this country. Can't sacrifice a thing. But look what it says. The day of the Lord is nigh at hand. Verse 2, a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. In the morning spread upon the mountains a great people and, and a strong. And look what he says. There has not ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. It's going to be terrible. It really will. He says, nothing like you've ever seen before. So he goes on to describe it in verses 3 on, and he says, As a, a fire devours before them, this army, and behind them a flame burns. The land in front of them is as the Garden of Edom, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing shall escape them, not even the people in the bunker. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen, so shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains, they shall leap, like the noise of a flame of fire that devours the stubble as a strong people set in battle array. Before their face, the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war, and they shall march every one on his ways, and they shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk every one in his path, and when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb up upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a thief, and the earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining, and the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that execute his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can abide it? So, you know, you look down at verse 5, it says, Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap, like the noise of a flame of fire that devours a stubble. They're saying over the mountains there are going to come these people. All of a sudden, there they appear, and here's this noise, and I'm telling you, it will put fear in those that they're descending upon. Now, there are, I don't know how many of you have seen this movie. They made a movie. It's about a true story. It's based on a true story, a true war thing that happened in South Africa called Zulu. And this outpost of these British soldiers were trapped. And, I mean, there was countless thousands of these African 
All they had was spears. Some of them had guns, mostly spears, descending on this small outpost, and they couldn't get away from them. And all of a sudden, you can, they would take these spears and hit these shields. And I mean, it made my hair stand up watching the movie. And they can't see them, but they can hear them. And that's what Joel was saying this army is going to be like. And then all of a sudden, there they are. Thousands of them. And they just descend. It just It's the same picture of these locusts. They descend on these British guys. And like it says here, they'll shoot them and they just keep coming. And that's the way it was. They were like locusts, these Zulu warriors. And they'd kill a bunch of them and they just keep coming and coming. And it talks about being on their rooftops. Next thing you know, those Zulu warriors are up there. They're setting places on fire. They're coming in through the roofs. It's terrifying. You can't stop them. And he's saying that's what this army is going to be like. Absolutely terrifying. So he's saying there's a judgment coming. You can't even imagine it. Strong men will wilt under the judgment. And he's saying we should be terrified. So like Jeff Lang said not that long ago, in Hebrews 12:26, it says God shook the earth at Sinai. But what does he say now? That he's going to do what? He's going to shake the very heavens. And if you're in Joel, look what it says in verse 10. The earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark and the stars shall withdraw their shining. That's what's coming. And so like that verse, Hebrews 12, 28 to 29. But for us, he says, wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. What do we need to do? It says, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So is there anything wrong with sin? And we read in the Bible the judgments. We read the book of Revelations and see what's coming on this earth and pray for God's grace. The question I'm asking is the day of the Lord. Who will stand? There's nothing wrong with fearing God and His judgment and knowing that He's a consuming fire and having a respect, a godly reverence and fear. And pray that He will give us the grace that we can stand in that day. Because here's what Peter says. The time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begins with us, which it always does, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely, he says, scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? We don't want to be on that side of the equation, the ungodly and the sinner. See, and the righteous will barely be able to stand in that day. So do we need God's grace in these last days? Big time we do. We're reading it here in Joel. Read the book of Revelations. And so what should our response be? Now, up until this point, all I've talked about is judgment. <laughs> but from here, it's hope for God's people. So brighten up. Maybe we restore a little joy here or something, all right? But look what it says in verses 12 to 17. Here's, here's the answer. Therefore also, but notice what he says. Don't keep putting this off down the road. What does he say? Therefore also when? Now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting. Oh, there's that word again. And with weeping and with mourning and rend your heart and not your garments and turn unto the Lord your God for why? He's gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness and repents him of the evil. And who knows if he will return and repent 
and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather everybody, the children, those that are nursing. Let the ones that should be having a good time, the time, good time's over. You just got married. You'll have to do your honeymoon next year, he's telling them. Because he says, let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Nobody's exempt. This is a serious matter, he's telling them. Let the priest, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, and do we want this said of us, where is their God? Where is this God, they say, that heals and gives them joy and their spirit filled? Do we want them to say that of us? Where is their God? It's a reproach. And it doesn't have to be that way. But will half-hearted repentance work? Look what it says in verse 12. How does he say to repent? Turn to me even with what? With all of your heart. Now, here's the thing. You can't, you can't manufacture weeping and mourning. I mean, we, we went through all that back years back when at the Indianapolis Seminar, all these things are all, hearing all this stuff about uh, all this Joel 2 weeping and mourning, and people are trying to work it up. You can't work that up. But I'm saying, I would say this. If you know things aren't right in your life, you've got secret sins no one knows about, but you know it's going on. And you say, I just, I just feel cold, cold towards everything in Christianity and the Lord. Just fast. Just do that. I'm just going to get before the Lord and say, I know things aren't right. Let him start speaking to you. He can only he can produce that weeping and mourning. I mean, the worst thing that could happen is all of a sudden we're going to do all this religious stuff because we, we read about it or heard a message. But, hey, you might not even be in gross sin. You might not be necessarily like Jeff talked about the other night. It's just a matter of we're not serving the Lord with joy. You've left your first love. And just get back. Just take that step. Nobody likes the thought of fasting. It's just, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get before the Lord. I'm going to repent and do the first way. First works because fasting is just a way of humbling ourselves before the Lord. We say, hey, we need you. Things aren't right. I, I need you, Lord. It doesn't always have to be for sin. It's just, we need your mercy. I need your help. I need your grace to walk in your way. But like he says in verse 13, it's got to be from the heart. Not just doing it because everybody else is or because you think you should. What does he say? And rend your heart. Don't just do it outwardly and not your garments. And turn to the Lord your God. Because he says in verse 14, who knows? We can't take his forgiveness for granted, can we? So he has mercy on whom he wills. But he goes on to say, if you're sincere... He'll let you know. He'll let us know that we have been accepted and he's forgiven us. And how does that happen? Well, that's the rest of the chapter. Because in verse 18, the first thing he says he will do is this. Verses 18 to 20, he says, he'll restore your honor. Look what it says. Then will the Lord, after this, they've repented and they've turned with their whole hearts. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. 
Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and you'll be satisfied therewith, and shall no more, he says, I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. But I will remove far off from you the northern army, drive him into the land barren and desolate, and so on and so forth. He's saying, I'll take away your reproach. You know, so maybe you're like, maybe you in here, you're some young person, and you're like the harlot that we talked about the other night in Luke 7. Everybody knew who she was. And I'm telling you, I know the way things work. I grew up. I wasn't a Christian growing up. When you're a loose girl, everybody knows you are. That's just the way it goes. Guys talk. And so maybe you're that girl and you know it. And you want to get things right with the Lord. And you're like, I have no honor. Everybody knows who I am. Well, that's the way it was with that woman. And she comes in there. But guess what? She repented. She washed his feet with her tears. They despised her, didn't they? The religious hypocrites. But what did Jesus do? He looked at her and he said, Sister, these men despise you. But I say to you, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. And I'm putting you in a place of honor because everyone's going to read about you, that you're a changed life. And Matthew Henry wrote this. He said, God is the fountain of honor and dishonor. He can exalt the meanest and put contempt upon the greatest. Those that live ungodly and unclean lives do dishonor God and will bring dishonor upon themselves. For those that do show shall be lightly esteemed. Not only will God lightly esteem them, but they shall be lightly esteemed by the world. The very honor they are proud of shall be laid in the dust. They shall see themselves despised by all mankind. Their names are reproached, and when they are gone, their memories shall rot. But what about those? It says, if we seek and serve the glory of God, he will hear and hereafter secure our glory. If we humble and deny ourselves in anything to honor God and have a single eye to him in it, we may depend upon this promise. He will put the best honor upon us. If you turn and repent to him, he will put you in a place of honor in his kingdom. It doesn't matter what other people think. He says this in Samuel, those that honor me, I will honor. And those that despise me, I will lightly be lightly esteemed. So you can have your honor restored if it's been taken away from you, no matter what your sin is. And the second thing he says that he'll restore, you say, well, man, God has been hard on me and chastising me. I haven't felt good, I haven't had money, and I know it's because of my sin. But he says, if you turn to me, I'll restore what you lost in chastisement. Verse 21, he says, and look what he says. He, te- he tells the land, the beast, and men. He tells the land he's going to, he speaks to the land. It speaks to the animal that he's going to restore things to him. I think that's amazing. Verse 21, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree bears her fruit, the fig tree and the vine tree do yield their strength. And last he says, Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he gives you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down on you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. And the floors shall be full of wheat. And the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten, the cankerworm, the caterpillar, the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that has dealt wondrously with you. 
and my people shall never be ashamed. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. So do you think God's purpose in our life is to see how miserable he can make us? But sometimes the only way he can get our attention, like with Israel, is to hit us where it hurts. Can he? But that is not, I'm telling you, he's saying it right here. It's not his purpose to destroy. He sent that locust plague not to wipe them out, not to be harsh to them. He sends them the warning about the coming judgment, not that it'll happen, but that they can turn and repent. That's what God wants. I have no pleasure, he says, in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn and live. That's the heart of God. It is. That's the word of God. So that's his purpose in verse 27. That's his purpose for this church. Look at that, verse 27. And you will know. This is what he wants us to know, that I am in the midst of Shelbyville. That's what we want, isn't it? That's what God wants to produce in it, not to kill us and destroy us, and that I am the Lord, your God, and no else. None of these other things are important. And my people, he says, shall never be ashamed. But here, the last thing that he says he'll do if they turn is is he will restore the power and the life of the Holy Ghost. And here's a very familiar section, isn't it? Starting in verse 28. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And I also will pour upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days. I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. That is the greatest blessing that God could give any people. His presence and power in the person of the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you, here's, let me get, let me get to this. I probably should have got to this point because this is what I really want to say. The day of judgment is coming and I'm saying this is the answer in how we are going to be able to stand in the day of the Lord. Having this power of the Holy Spirit because there is such a strong spirit that has already entered this world, the church in the world. It's a deluding spirit. And people are becoming deceived in the church. And people are becoming afraid to speak out against homosexuality. Big name preachers are compromising on all that while everyone has their interpretation. I'm telling you, it is happening. And it's just beginning. And it's going to get worse. In my day, as a kid, if you lived together or had a baby out of wedlock, that was a shameful thing and hidden away. And everybody that's over 50 or 40 knows what I'm talking about. And now it's celebrated. And let me have another one. And woe be to you if you say anything about it. And I can almost guarantee you every family in here has someone in their little family tree that has that going on. And I'm telling you, they ain't put people in prison yet. Haven't put people in prison yet for speaking out against homosexuality. But it, believe me, it is coming soon. Strong, deluding spirit. It's like a vapor. And it's not just staying outside the world. It's, it's like a vapor that seeps under the door. It seeps into people's spirits and lives in ways you don't know. And the more we give ourselves over to the media, it's happening to us and we don't realize it. And Jesus said this, that the forces of darkness in the last day 
will be so strong that if it was possible, the elect would be deceived. He says, for there shall arise false Christ and false prophets, and they'll show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Let me ask you something. How is it possible to not be deceived then for us? What's the answer for us? He's saying if it was possible. Here, I know I'm going a little long. Turn to Ephesians 6 if you would please. Here's the answer for us. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Paul says this, this is familiar to us, but he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong how? And how else? And in the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness in this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And look at verse 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand when? That's the day we're talking about, the day of the Lord, that you can stand. That's how you're going to stand, by taking the whole armor of God and having done all, he says in verse 13, to stand. So the question we're asking, the day of the Lord, it's coming. Will you stand? God promises, hey, if we seek him, we just read it. Joel 2, with all of our hearts, In repentance, walking in repentance, that's not a one-time thing. In faith and humility, what did we just read in Joel 2? He says, if you'll do all that, rend your hearts, come to me with all your hearts, fasting and praying. We just read one of the results will be, I will pour out my spirit, Joel 2, 28. And the early church saw that great need. You know, in Acts 1, Jesus said, hey, I'm going to send you out to do missions. But listen, before you do missions, you need power. And it's not just, I mean, I understand. Listen, there's a difference between being spirit-filled and walking in the Spirit's power because Jesus was spirit-filled. And what happened? He was sent into the wilderness. What did he do for 40 days and 40 nights? He fasted. And then you read in Luke, it says he came back in the power of the Spirit because of his dedication to God. There's a difference. Yeah, we're all spirit-filled. But are we walking in the power of the Spirit? And they saw that. They went to that upper room. Jesus said, hey, you need to be Spirit-filled before you go out. And they went to the upper room. And it says in Acts 1.14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Corporate prayer and supplication. That went on for 10 days. They saw they had a need that they couldn't meet themselves. They had to have that promise before they could go out and face the world, didn't they? Ten days they prayed, and it says the day of Pentecost came, and then God came down to dwell in his children forever. The evidence was they're speaking in tongues, and the people are like, what is wrong with you all? Are you drunk? And Peter says, no, but what you're hearing and seeing is what we just read. It's spoken by the prophet Joel, God's answer to his children to be able to stand in these last days. The prophet Joel, verses 2, 28. It's an end time prophecy. So we've had the Spirit. Some some don't even have the Spirit in here. How will you stand at all, I would ask? 
It's that serious. But listen, after that event happened in Acts chapter 2, they were no longer ordinary Christians, were they? They were supernatural believers. They walked, if you go on and read chapters 4 and 5, in the true love of God. Not because they thought we just want to be nice people, but because they were empowered to do that by the Holy Spirit, right? Witnessed and preached. But it said they didn't just witness and preach and say the right things. Their words had Holy Ghost anointing conviction behind it, where it's cutting hearts. And men and brethren, what do we do to be saved? That's evangelism in the New Testament. That's missions. Read the book of Acts. Am I making things up? And the biggest thing, too, is they had power over sin in their lives through that. And also they had persecution. So Joel asked the question, the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? And I'm sorry, but reading the Left Behind series is not going to help you. And so you say, I can, someone's out there saying, man, you're scaring me, and I don't have to receive it because I'm going to be raptured before anything happens. Well, I'll tell you, that's, that sounds real good. You know what? But the day of the Lord for America may happen before the rapture happens. A terrible day of gloominess and darkness and an invading army. Where are we said to make it to the end? You're thinking judgment can't come? God, I can't believe it hasn't happened yet. He can't send a nation against this nation and wipe it out and cause multitudes to fall away and prove where their faith really wasn't? You think that can't happen before the rapture takes place? Where do you get that? And judgment's going to come here. It will. And who will stand and fall is the question. And the answer is those that have humbled themselves, I believe, before the Lord, like we just read in fasting and prayer, see their need for His power and His presence in their life. Come to know. And I believe, I want it to happen here. I believe it can. There's no reason it can't. The message is, I hope it didn't come across negative because I don't mean it that way. But we can know here that God is in our midst. We really can. And we can be like those that were baptized on the day of Pentecost. Mark 16, these signs shall follow us who believe. We'll not only speak in tongues, but we can know when we lay hands on the sick, that will take care of it. The Lord will raise them up. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Do we, do we have that confidence? But we need to get there because I don't think we all do. I think it all sounds good. We can cast out devils. And I know that's happened with people here, but we can do that. All of us can because we've got the, it's the power of the Holy Spirit in us doing it, isn't it? We, have to, if we believe we have that power of the Holy Spirit. It can happen. It really can. So, I was going to turn to 1 Thessalonians, but I think we'll just stop there. So the early church, they were hungry. And those people in Joel's day, I believe, they got hungry. They saw their need and fasted and prayed and saw the presence of God and power descend on them in a mighty way. And that's what I'd like to see here. Wouldn't you all? Amen. Amen. Let's go before the Lord with a word of prayer. Father, I just ask, Lord, that you'll... Just impress all of our hearts that that solemn day, that day of the Lord is coming, that it's near at hand. And I just ask more than that, Lord, that you'll just impress upon us that now is a time that we need to draw near to you in fasting and prayer and seeking your face and knowing your presence in our life in a special way like we see in the book of Acts. I just ask you'll make that real to all of us and a desire in all of our hearts that we, this church here, 
that we can all be those who will stand in the day of the Lord. I just thank you that you'll do that for us, and we thank you for the word that you've given us today, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You all stand up. That's a great song with a great promise, isn't it? Amen. Well, does anybody have anything they want to share? Yes, ma'am.